politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow patriots, to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. Scorn taxpayers, forgotten Americans who ask for nothing but adherence to the Constitution by our government. And yes, it is Constitution Day. I'm feeling a little bit under the weather, but I did not want to miss this special Constitution Day show. As many of you know, we've had this custom the last number of years. I write a manifesto on special days, whether it's July 4th, Memorial Day, Patriot Day, September 11th. We had a good one out. Um, Didn't have time to write something new for Constitution Day 2019, but I refer to you to our 2016 article that I am going to link to in show notes, and we're going to refer to back and forth today because I think the truths that I spoke to back then ring louder today than even three years ago. Now, we are holding by, what is it, 232 years after the delegates got together at the end of that very hot and sticky summer in Philadelphia, just like this year on the East Coast. Very hot there. They wanted to get out of there. No one thought they would end that summer with an agreement. Very tumultuous days throughout you know, June and July. They broke a little bit in August, and they came back. And and it's very important to understand the evolution of how that came about, not just the finished product, but for what we're going to discuss today, you need to understand the raw materials and what they rejected, where they were groping around in the dark to discover what is it we do. We got rid of uh, the British. We got rid of King George. But what is government? Right. You need some sort of government to secure the blessings of liberty, to secure justice, to achieve national defense. We don't want no government. You had to get it just right. The right balance to have the optimal amount of liberty while protecting the society from evils internally, certainly externally. And that was the vexing issue. That was the vexing issue. And they came up with what they thought was the best document they can get was born at a compromise. Um, the famous uh, speech of Ben Franklin after, well, before they signed it that day. And then after they signed it, he had the final word where he said, I, I look at George Washington's chair where it had an image of the sun, you know, as uh, Washington was presiding over that convention. And he said, I see a rising sun. And indeed, the greatest nation on earth rose out of that for, for really two centuries before the decline of, of our generation. And uh, we really have to wonder if we are confronted with a setting sun. Now, what I'd like to do is bring in history and first principles while speaking directly to the challenges of today with the specific issues and specific solutions we need you know, not to only talk about the day's news, not to only talk about abstract principles, but really to bring them together. And still the biggest news story on the right of this week is Brett Kavanaugh. And as I alluded to yesterday, I believe everyone on my side or almost everyone is missing the point. They're missing the point of what the left is trying to do with Brett Kavanaugh. They're missing the point of where our primary focus needs to be because we are all playing the game of the left. We are not following the Constitution as it was adopted in 1789. And um, we, 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 we are just not following it. We're not. There's many ways where we're deviating from the Constitution. But the single biggest way that I believe is of the most consequence to where we sit now is the role of the judicial power. The judicial power is vested in the Supreme Court. Article 3 of the Constitution starts out that way. It's not a coincidence that it was Article 3 that number one was the legislature Number two was the executive, and number three was the judicial branch. 
And it's no coincidence that according to Max Ferrand, the greatest uh, historian on the um, Constitutional Convention, wrote, wrote his book about 100 years ago, it's no surprise why he, he said the judiciary conjured up the least amount of controversy and debate. Now, if they were told back then that it would become the eminent tribunal of, of every single right defining the other branches' powers as well as their own, mediating every single, not individual civil or criminal dispute, but political dispute of a nation, boy, it would have consumed all of the debate. All of the debate. What, what is going on today that people don't understand is this. The reason why everyone's at each other's throats over Supreme Court nominees is because we all, both sides, Republicans and Democrats, have agreed to this erroneous premise that courts don't just adjudicate controversies under the law, that they get that you get to put a straw man plaintiff in court to directly shoot at a policy or a statute and determine with finality and exclusivist authority, the direction of the country over every social, cultural, or political issue, um, including questions about foreign nationals coming here. Marriage, election law. The courts have every say, even lower courts, and then the Supreme Court's the final word. So it's no surprise that the left even as they continue to win, is scared that the right is making strides. And you have Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's, who's sick. Maybe it will turn more conservative. And it's no surprise that Republicans will do everything they can to defend what they think is the budding conservative majority, which I believe is a mistake. But either way, the point is, we're all misunderstanding the power of the judiciary. We're fighting over nothing. Now, obviously, I don't blame people for defending Kavanaugh against just, just terribly unsubstantiated claims that are just the most horrid claims to lodge against someone if you have no evidence. But at the same time, I can't help but observe how this commonality this unity of purpose this sense of purpose seems to come together once and only once when it comes to defending supreme court nominees now he's already on the court this is a unique situation but there is no such sense of purpose anywhere else among republicans and even so-called conservatives on budget bills on immigration on crime on foreign policy on national security on health care no not even on the role of the judiciary itself. The same energy that we're fighting for so-called conservative nominees who then go and screw us in the judicial game could be used to go back to our first principles of what is the Constitution and what is the judicial power. That's where we should be today. Because what they don't realize is this. I don't believe the primary motivation primary motivation of the left is to somehow impeach Kavanaugh. I think what they are doing is sending signals to Kavanaugh and John Roberts. Hey, buddy, if you want to get back in our good graces, here's what you got to do. They're creating their own check and balance on the court. See, none of us are using the ultimate check and balance, which is, as Hamilton said in Federalist 78, they have no power of enforcement. Nor do they really have any power to adjudicate most of the political cases they're doing or render the decisions they're making. And certainly Congress has the power to define their jurisdiction, when and how they could sit, the rules and regulations of their proceedings, the number of justices. And then even once they render an opinion in an individual case, that that opinion in that case is fixed on national issues affecting the whole of the people is just not true. That's what both sides should get together and say. Let's slug that out in the political branches. But instead, they're trying to create this new thing of they're going to basically blackmail them. 
And the reason why they're doing it is because they saw from this term that it worked. That it worked. Before we get back to our first principles, I just want to, again, talk about the here and now. I have an essay out we're going to link to in um, show notes from Friday. Why conservatives must fight judicial supremacism and not hang their hopes on John Roberts or a so-called conservative majority. What people don't realize is it looks like we're winning certain cases while losing certain cases. But the panoply of cases that are making their way to the Supreme Court are insane. Really, we should so-called win all of them. But even when we win, they're defensive victories. They're cases that the left took to court that should never have been in court, that lower court judges issue insane rulings on, and then we're appealing to them. Often, they don't take up the case. That's Robert's little, and, and some of the others, I believe, too, tacitly allowing bad rulings to be upheld. And then even when they do, half the time they rule with us, half the time they kind of do a chicken, half and half ruling. And, ha and then there's other times where they downright screw us, like with the census case. Now, that was Robert's, not Kavanaugh, but Kavanaugh screwed us on a number of cases this term. And the left understands that. Everyone was saying, all my colleagues, oh, Kavanaugh is going to come out swinging. Now he's going to be even more conservative. And I said, no, you don't understand the way he thinks. The, he, the left has gotten to him and they know it. That's what they're trying to do here. So rather than fight over a conservative majority or not a majority, which we're not going to get anyway. Let's fight over what is the judicial power. So, you know, what took place there in 1787, remember, we're celebrating the signing of the Constitution. Obviously, you had the next hurdle. It had to be adopted, um, ratified by the colonies. It wasn't until 1789. But September 17th, 1787, really is the most important day in our history. It should be a national holiday. It should be celebrated in the schools. But of course, I mean, what percentage of public school teachers do you even think mention it's constitution day and frankly the ones that do they probably say oh it's the day that uh you know daca is in the constitution and gay marriage is in the constitution or something like that but madison wrote when he was reflecting upon the constitutional convention towards the end of, end of his life he said it was never an assembly of men charged with a great and arduous task who were more pure in their motives or more exclusively or anxiously devoted the object committed to them then were the members of the federal convention of 1787 to the object of proposing and devising a constitutional system which would best secure the permanent liberty and happiness of the country and you know it was like i said there was a lot of infighting it wasn't it wasn't simple um at some point when it looked like it was going to fall apart a month and a half earlier Almost two months earlier, Benjamin Franklin had to intervene. He gave a whole speech, called on them to, to pray. And um, we had a constitutional system we adopted. But what is a constitution? We have to first understand what in the world a constitution is. So first off, I want you guys to listen to this quote from Ronald Reagan's 1987 State of the Union Address. I think it's very important. Let's listen to how he defines it. I've read the constitutions of a number of countries, including the Soviet unions. Now, some people are surprised to hear that they have a constitution, and it even supposedly grants a number of uh, freedoms to its people. Many countries have written into their constitution provisions for freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. But if this is true, why is the Constitution of the United States so exceptional? Well, the difference is so small that it almost escapes you. But it's so great, it tells you the whole story in just three words. We, the people. In those other constitutions, the government tells the people of those countries what they're allowed to do. In our Constitution, we, the people, tell the government what it can do, and it can do only those things listed in that document and no others. Virtually every other revolution in history 
has just exchanged one set of rulers for another set of rulers. Our revolution is the first to say the people are the masters and government is their servant. So notice what he's telling us, that we the people tell the government what it can do. That, that's the big difference. There's plenty of other constitutions and, and they have all this language, the people are gonna live free. But the power always has to reside in a republic directly or indirectly with the people. That's what a constitutional republic is, okay? So the people have to have control through their elected representatives of the most important decisions. And that's why Congress was the main enchilada. Everyone understood that. Um, Madison said in the Federalist Papers that the legislature and a Republican government will necessarily predominate. Everyone understood that. That's why it's Article One. That was the foundation. You have a legislature, just like other places you had a parliament. The big vexing question was, how do you check it? Then, you know, how do you have the arrangement of separation of powers? And that was because you can't have a runaway legislature either. And that's when they concocted the system. But the foundation is it has to reside from the people. Big social changes, big um, national security decisions, big fiscal decisions that all has to flow from the people. And, you know, the question was, you know, how much of an executive veto did you have? Did the president help shape that? And that's what they were kind of concocting throughout those long, hot summer months of 1787. Now, a constitution, very importantly, is a fixed document. You can't say now is the time we've evolved as a people that the Eighth Amendment means this is cruel and unusual. The 14th Amendment means, no, no, no. If you want to do that, let's enact that legislatively. You can't fix that into a constitution. As Justice Joseph Story famously said, the constitutional principles are to speak in the same voice now and forever. They are of no man's private interpretation. They are ordained by the will of the people and can only be changed by the sovereign command of the people. Okay, you can't have an unelected judiciary, just a, a lawyerly class determining what's going on there. That just doesn't happen. It was never designed that way. Justice William Patterson, one of the original Supreme Court justices, um, very much involved in the crafting of Article 3 of the Constitution, he said in 1795, what is a constitution? It is the form of government delineated by the mighty hand of the people in which certain first principles of fundamental law are established. Certain, because certain unalienable rights are already affixed by natural law, um, affirmed in the Declaration. But fundamental law are established. The Constitution is certain and fixed. It contains the permanent will of the people and is the supreme law of the land. It is paramount to the power of the legislature and can be revoked or altered only by the authority made, made of it. Notice how they had to say we don't believe in legislative supremacy, it's constitutional supremacy. No one in their right mind would have conjured up a thought of judicial supremacy that the unelected judges that are meant to mediate disputes would mediate political questions, cultural questions, national security questions. That, that didn't even need to be, that, that wasn't said, that was obvious. But, Again, the foundation of our government is the legislature, and that's why it had to be said that, at the end of the day, the Constitution. All of us, the states, Congress, the executive branch, and yes, even the unelected judiciary, and the people, public opinion, protests, media, everyone, NGOs, everyone together, has to guard that document. No one individual or one group or one branch of government can lay claim to the sole and final expositor 
of that document because then you have North Korea, and especially if it's the unelected branch being the judiciary. <clears throat> now, first off, you have to understand, <clears throat> in order to understand the constitutional system, what they're trying to accomplish. Before you understand <clears throat> the, the three branches of the federal, federal government, you have to understand the other three branches, so to speak, referenced in the Constitution. Three relationships, I'd say. Federal, state, and individual. Okay, before we get to legislative, executive, judicial, in, in, at a federal level, and in most states as well, similar systems, but it's just the fact that you have feds, state, and individual. That's, that's the first thing they had to reckon with before they uh, defined the powers of the various branches of the federal government. What was the relationship of the federal government as a whole to the states and the people? That, that's what they were dealing with at first in that convention. So what is this system we adopted? Okay. It's really very simple. Madison talks about it. The federal government had enumerated defined powers, primarily dealing with national defense, external affairs, and subject matter that required uniformity, naturalization, currency, interstate trade. Think of things like that. So, so those are the things. National defense, external affairs, things that required uniformity, things that they needed defects that they needed to perfect from the Articles of Confederation where there was too much chaos. So it's not that we as conservatives, constitutional conservatives, believe in even limited government. I mean, relative to, to what we see today, we certainly do. But ideally, what it was is it's the right contours of government. There are certain things that the federal government should do that are very, very important. And, and the commonality was this. It wasn't that here's liberty, the states take some liberty from you, and the feds take some more liberty from you. No. The starting point was how to achieve the optimal liberty. See, if you didn't have any government, you would have a weak nation. You'd get invaded. You'd have chaos and anarchists internally. And then, you know, you'd be scared to walk outside and you wouldn't have any liberty. Hence, what we often have today. If you don't have, you, you need a nation state. This is what some of the radical libertarians don't understand today. We're not nationalists. We, we believe in the individual at heart, but there's... We do believe in the Constitution. It did create the federal government for a reason. So there are certain very important things they need to do. Madison and Federalist 45, you should look it up. That's your homework. Read Federalist 45. That's really the best one explaining the arrangement, that the federal government powers are, quote, few and defined, applying, quote, principally on external objects as war, peace, negotiation, foreign commerce. State powers, on the other hand, were to be numerous and indefinite, extending, quote, to all the objects which, in the ordinary course of affairs, concern the lives, liberties, and properties of the people and the internal order, improvement, and prosperity of the state. And um, that's, that's what it was supposed to be. And then, obviously, there are unalienable rights that were understood at the time. You didn't even need a Bill of Rights, but the Bill of Rights added it. That's a whole other story. Madison didn't believe in it, and I believe he was right, because it implied that government gives you these rights rather than you don't even need to say them, that we have them on our own. And I think over time, he has been proven right. We, we should do a whole show on that. But anyway, those rights belong to the people, right? So there are certain decisions that with majoritarian rule at a state level, you deal with at a federal level, more on immigration, army, military, national defense, um, treaties, commerce, foreign and interstate commerce, uniform things. We need a one flag, one currency, weights and measurements, you know, things like that. And certain practical things. But then there's certain things that are hands off life, liberty, property, and the right to defend those things were supposed to be hands off that the feds or states can't take from you. And the idea of this arrangement was. You needed a government because if you had chaos and invaders and violent people, you couldn't secure those blessings of liberty. So the state has to be created on a certain level. And then the federal government was created for the things that even the states either were unable to 
protect you from inherently states weren't really at uh didn't really have the capability of defending against an invasion immigration was another one we talk about all the time um obviously interstate commerce too much chaos and then there's the things that you know we could only do ourselves our own house our own protection hence the second amendment which again didn't even need to be codified into the bill of rights it was already there it was already understood now obviously you look at every facet of our government up is down down is up what's supposed to be a federal power is given to the states what's a state power should be given is given to the feds what's a true unalienable, unalienable right is written out um you know what's antithetical to a right is written in um rights are negative it's it's I have the right to be left alone from punitive action of a government. Instead, nowadays, you know, those things are ignored. Government could take your property, but I have a right to positive benefits from a government. And the ultimate positive benefit is foreign nationals breaking in and demanding, you know, citizenship rights. That's what we have today. But like I said, the biggest usurpation is the erroneous understanding of the judicial power. Because the, the judiciary has been given the power to laugh last. And he who laughs last laughs best. Both parties now agree that the eminent tribunal, no matter the issue, anyone could sue in any court and create a case or controversy and have that fundamental issue be decided by a court and once a court renders an opinion in that case, whether it had the right to adjudicate that case or not, that is unquestionably what the Constitution means. That's the law of the land. The laws aren't the laws. The court opinions are the laws. And there's nothing anyone can do about it. That is final. They could veto any policy of an executive, state, or federal. They could um, veto any law by a legislature, or state, or federal. And that is unquestionably the law of the land and through that eminent veto therefore by definition they control what you can do because if they define you can't do one two three four five six seven eight and ten well by definition you can only do nine so they're governing too and often you see courts often do directly say you must do this you must grant visas you must grant marriage licenses you must have this and this days on this and this sundays of early voting before the election you know, I, I could, evidently, I could sue Trump over the Afghanistan war. You know, another soldier, Green Beret, was killed yesterday for nothing. Um, I, I could take the Afghanistan war to court and were a court to bite at that lawsuit, take it up, hear it, and render an opinion, we are told the Afghanistan war would be struck down. This is the biggest misnomer imaginable. If there is one thing that I wish I could teach political, so-called legal professionals, much less kids in school today about the Constitution, it's that there is no judicial veto. Think about it. Think about the power that we are told the judiciary has today. That they have the sole and final say, judicial supremacy, judicial exclusivity. They have the exclusive and sole right to determine what the Constitution is with regard to any issue. And they can never be out of bounds. You could only pick who's on the courts, or maybe you could impeach them if you can get enough votes. But there's nothing else you can do. And anything they say is like, is like a magical activation switch that like makes it happen. Do you think, don't you think that our founders would have put that in the Constitution? They made, the big deal was the executive veto. Congress passes a law and, and the president could sign it or not sign it or he could, he, he, could, he could veto it. And it's struck down. So if then there's another avenue that it then goes to the judiciary to be ratified or struck down, you would think they would have said struck down. If that's the final say, the president doesn't have the final say. It's the judiciary. I want to discuss with you the Constitutional Convention arrangement 
why it demonstrates once and for all that this entire thing is crazy. This entire notion is a myth. As we've noted many times, judicial review is not an active act of the judicial branch. It's a passive act. All it means, there's no like judicial review, I get to strike down. It just means that we each have powers to determine the Constitution as it intersects with our valid powers. So if I have a case where someone has a legitimate right that really is unambiguously in the Constitution and it's being violated, I can render a judgment for him irrespective of what the other branches are doing. But how much more so the other branches need to use their powers irrespective of what the judicial branch says. It it works both ways. It has to work both ways. Otherwise, we don't have three co-equal branches. It goes in a circle. It's not a on top. Again, I want you to take a look at this picture here that I created of the system in green that we adopted and the system in red that we didn't adopt. It's the Constitution stands on top and you each have powers to go around in circles and you debate each other and you check each other. Not that the judicial branch sits on top because that would have undermined everything they did. So I want to I want to um, prove that to you today with the Council of Revision. Before I get to that, I want to note. I want to note for you guys here today. If the founders meant think about this very philosophically, and I want you to listen to this very carefully because I haven't seen anyone make this argument. If the founders meant for their rulings in cases that are illegitimate for them to hear, or even if they are legitimate for them to hear, to be self-executing on everyone and universally universally binding on everyone and self-executing on the other branches of government, the, the way they are over legitimate plaintiffs in a civil or criminal case, that's what judicial power is, IBM versus Microsoft, or you criminally convict someone. But if you want to take a political issue to court, and it intersects with the, the powers of other branches, the notion that the other branches would be silent is absurd. But we're told, no, they, they, they rule over the other branches. So think about this for a moment. Why didn't the founders give the judiciary a direct, clean avenue to do that? I mean, no one could disagree with me. Everyone agrees there's no, it doesn't literally say in the Constitution. I mean, even if you are a judicial supremacist, Congress passed a law. It goes to the president to sign or veto, and if he signs it, then it goes to the judiciary branch to uphold or strike down, right? And, and no, it doesn't do that. Everyone's like, no, you have the the adjudicate, they interpret the laws, and depending on what type of law it is, if you count upon the judicial branch to convict someone, and they choose not to convict someone because they believe the law is unconstitutional, for the purposes of the judicial branch, it could de facto have an effect of rendering the law moot if the other branches don't fight back. But if they meant them to have that jud- that veto power, why didn't they give it to them? Th- th- think about this polarizing dichotomy. If somehow you get a valid case or controversy withstanding, you could shred and strike down a law, veto it, rip it out, you know, rip the statute out of the book, just, just rip it out. Just like a presidential veto. But if you can't get standing, so what? The unconstitutional statute just stays there forever? If they wanted them to have the final say, then they would have given them the final say. Now, nowadays, you don't really see that because anyone could get standing, and that's that's the problem. It's a joke, and they just usurp their power. So it's almost like a de facto, and we even talk about it this way. Oh, let's see what the courts say. If the court upholds it or strikes it down, um, but everyone agrees that you know, our system wasn't designed that way. It was supposed to be a very narrow, tailored understanding of what a judicial case and controversy with valid standing is. But you know, we are told, again, it could be the most laughable, absurd standing. Forget about if you're a conservative or a liberal, but just absurd, absurd. That I, I could say I have a right to a press badge in the White House, and that could be a valid case, and they could render a ruling. And then somehow that's binding. Why wouldn't the founders have given them that power? Why? Here's another proof I have, philosophically. Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution gives the legislative branch full authority, full authority over the 
making exceptions and regulations to the jurisdiction of the courts. Think about that. If the courts were meant to be the final um, final say on all cases and controversies, how could Congress have given, how could the Constitution have given Congress the power to define their jurisdiction? Right? The founders said it, they don't have any jurisdiction other than what Congress gives them. You know, if you if you look up on that final day of the convention, final day of the convention there, you'll find Edmund Randolph, who was eventually became George Washington's attorney general. He was a delegate from Virginia, along with Madison. He helped originally propose the Virginia plan on behalf of Madison. And he walked away. You'll see it's one of the final speeches before they took the vote. And, you know, he did it very sorrowfully. He was sad to do it. And one of the things that he noted. Um, and by the way, Randolph was one of the five members of the Committee of Detail at the Constitutional Convention. Tasked with actually drafting the Constitution. And I write about this in Chapter 9 in my book here. He left the convention without signing it because he had concerns that the federal judiciary would pose a grave threat to the states. But nonetheless, a couple months later, he went on to endorse it and advocate in debate on behalf of it at the Virginia Ratification Convention at a state level. And he said, my objection would be unanswerable were I not satisfied that it contains its own cure in the following words, with such exceptions and under such regulations as Congress shall make, meaning to the judicial power. Congress can regulate the appellate jurisdiction properly, and I have no doubt it will. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. On the one hand, okay, well, if Congress doesn't strip jurisdiction, they're the final say. But if they do, then they're not. It doesn't make any sense. So the answer is they don't have the final say. It's, it's a complicated concurrent sharing of jurisdiction that they all have in their respective powers to check each other. Finally, I, I, I want to close. And, and look, I can go on forever here, as you could tell. Um, I was feeling under the weather today, but you know, talking about the Constitution has really just brought me alive here. Um, the Council of Revision. A lot of people often say, that, you know, you see this notion of the Council of Revision of having the courts strike down was um, conceived by Madison himself during the convention, during those summer months, and it was rejected. So you see, we didn't adopt that. So how could you say that's what the judicial power is? Valid statement. I'm, I said this before, and some of you might remember it a year or two ago, I think about a year ago, uh, but I want to repeat it today in honor of Constitution Day. Um, it's an observation I haven't seen anyone else make. If others have, I forgive. Um, I ask forgiveness. I'm not stealing your work. I formulated this thought on my own, um, but I haven't seen it written anywhere. It's even worse than that. It bothered me. How could Madison have even conjured up such a council of revision without, you know, with no transparency that, that, that the judicial branch, which was going to be unelected, could decide all this? How could he even think about it? I know it was rejected. The answer is he never thought about that. If you understand the system of government that they were groping in the darkness to try to create, you get rid of King George, what do you replace it with? They were doing trial and error and there were 10 different variables that kept changing. Legislature has this, states have this, executive is this, this is the function, executive is a tribunal of five people, one person, this type of veto, that type of people. And you can't mix and match what they wanted to do with one and apply it to the system we ultimately adopted. You have to understand it in the system they were proposing that day at the convention. And if you look at the Council of Revision, it was before they had developed what they ultimately developed and we ultimately adopted is the role of the president, the executive, and the executive veto. There's about three to four differences between what we have today than even what the Council of Revision would have been. This is 10 times more tyrannical. And there's a good reason 
to explain the Council of Revision. When you understand it, you'll understand incontrovertibly once and for all why our founders never, ever could have adopted the judicial supremacy that is prevailing today. Again, the foundation is the legislative branch. Article one, they dealt with that first. They always knew we were going to have a legislature. Okay, that was that was obvious. The question was how to check it. So they didn't yet invent the executive veto. Okay. They were going on to propose, okay, who checks the legislature? The legislature has all this power. Who checks it? The Council of Revision wasn't instead and on top, it wasn't on top of the executive veto. It was instead of the executive veto. That was the executive veto. That was the first round of checks. So right now you have Congress pass a law, then the president has his say. The notion that then it goes to another round of the courts would be insane because even under the Council of Revision, they weren't proposing that. Under the Council of Revision, this was still the first round of checks. It, and that's number one. And then even in the first round, it was together with the president. The president and the Supreme Court would together affirm or veto the legislature that was in lieu that's like that's not the equivalent of in other words the council of revision is not equivalent of judicial supremacism that we have today it was much more logical it was much more that equivalent to the executive veto that was the first round so a it was just one round against the legislature not two and b it included the president who was elected and very much public and responsible to the people. The notion that you would have a second and final exclusive check exclusively comprised of unelected judges is loony. They never would have thought of something like that. But it's more than that. It's stronger than that. Much stronger than that. You have to understand what the legislature was, meaning in concept, it wasn't implemented, but the, the proposal on the table with the, you know, New Jersey plans is before they had, you know, um, Wilson's compromise, the Connecticut compromise between Virginia and New Jersey. Um, this was. This was a very different legislature. The legislature had an insane amount of power. The legislature was unicameral under this proposal. It was unicameral, almost like a parliament. So lot, tons of power fixed in one branch. That's number one. It didn't have the bicameralism. Remember, like a lot of people are like, Daniel, you're a majoritarian and you think it should be left at the legislature. Keep in mind, bicameralism is a big, big deal. That's a big deal. Especially back then before the, ratification of the 17th amendment because they were almost like coming from different areas the um the house was directly elected by the people the senate was an organ of the states and the president was supposed to be a mix and that's what we had up until you know the, the through the the second decade of the 20th, 20th century most of our history was like that that's a big check. It's very, we see, look, we see it nowadays. It's extremely hard before you even get to the president's signature just to get something passed both houses. And that's with both houses being more similar today than they were back then. They're both directly elected by the people. But even now, it's very tough. You could count the thousands upon thousands of things that pass one house and don't pass the other house. But this was back when it was unicameral. That's number one. Number two, under that plan, do you know, a lot of people don't know this, Congress had veto power over state legislation. Congress got to veto things done by the state. That's a hell of a lot of power coordinated all in the hands of a unicameral legislature. That was it. The legislature controlled everything. 
federally, and then had a veto power over the states, and it was unicameral. Now they're like, all right, that's the first step. Now we, we need a, a check on this. And that's when they were conjuring up, we need some sort of a veto on them. And one of the ideas was a, um, a mixture, a mixture of the president and um, the Supreme Court and had various different formulas you know, that were proposed, which we could talk about another time. But the notion that we would have a bicameral legislature where one is an organ of the people and then you go to the Senate, which is an organ of the, of the um, states and it passes one and it passes another and they don't have veto power over the states at all. That was chucked. And then the president has an independent, sole elected veto authority or to, to veto or to sign, and he signs it. On top, House, Senate, President, they don't have veto power over the states under the system. Then the unelected judiciary, a district judge, could come out of left field and go, struck down. Not, not jointly with the president, and, and that is the sole and final say. Dude, the founders couldn't have conjured up anything like that. That is utterly insane. And yet that is what everyone thinks is the system we adopted. Until this truth is inculcated through the thick skulls of the political class, we will never solve our political problems. This is what everyone's missing about this whole Kavanaugh fight. I'm sick of hearing about it. We're all fighting the wrong battle. The courts have no such power. to have this unquestionable veto. It doesn't exist. They don't veto anything. They render a judgment in a case. If it's an illegitimate case, it's a usurpation, you ignore it. If it's a legitimate case, but you strongly disagree with their exposition of the law or the constitution, the other branches have ample powers to push back against that and don't have to accept their interpretation unquestionably for every act they have done, as, as Lincoln said so many times throughout his career. They, they, they certainly don't veto but I wanted you to understand is the system we adopted why certainly this cannot be true. I just want to uh, close with Benjamin Franklin's speech. He rose to give his final speech right before the vote, September 17, 1787. And these sentiments, sir, I agree to this constitution with all its faults. If they are such, because I think a general government necessary for us, and there is no form of government, but what may be a blessing to the people if well administered. And believe further that this is likely to be well administered for a course of years and can only end in despotism as other forms have done before it, when the people shall become so corrupted as to need despotic government being incapable of any other. I doubt too whether any other convention we can obtain may be able to make a better constitution for when you assemble a number of men to have the advantage of their joint wisdom, you inevitably assemble with those men all their prejudices, their passions, their errors of opinion, their local interests, and their selfish views. From such an assembly, can a perfect production be expected? It therefore astonishes me, sir, to find the system approaching so near to perfection as it does, and I think it will astonish our enemies who are waiting with confidence to hear that our councils are confounded like those of the builders of Babel and that our states are on the point of separation only to meet hereafter for the purpose of cutting one another's throats. Thus I consent, sir, to this constitution because I expect no better and because I'm not sure that it is not the best. The opinions I have had of its errors, I sacrificed to the public good. I have never whispered a syllable of them abroad. Within these walls they were born and here they shall die. If every one of us in returning to our constituents were to report the objections he has had to it, and endeavor to gain partisans in support of them, we might prevent its being generally received and thereby lose all the salutary effects and great advantages resulting naturally in our favor among foreign nations as well as among ourselves from our real or apparent unanimity. Much of the strength and efficiency of any government in procuring and securing happiness to the people depends on opinion. 
on the general opinion of the goodness of the government as well as of the wisdom and integrity of its governors. I hope, therefore, that for our sake, our own sakes, as a part of the people and for the sake of posterity, we shall act heartily and unanimously in recommending this constitution wherever our influence may extend and turn our future thoughts and endeavors to the means of having it well administered. On the whole, sir, I cannot help expressing a wish that every member of the convention who may still have objection to it would with me on this occasion doubt a little of his own infallibility and to make manifest our unanimity put his name onto this instrument. He then called for a recorded vote. They voted on it. And then this is when he famously said, um, looking, he said, I have said often and often in the course of the session and the vicissitudes of my hopes and fears as to its issue, looked at behind the president, meaning George Washington, without being able to tell whether it was a rising or setting sun. But now at length, I have the happiness to know that it is a rising and not a setting sun. Friends, fellow patriots, people that feel forgotten by the political squabbling on both sides, we need some sort of a meeting of the minds to get together and to form a new movement. Not a new government, but a new movement. Something akin to what they did in the Constitutional Convention, but more of a strategy session to see how things have gone wrong and what we can do to fix them. Compromise, but recognize that if we don't change this, we will definitely be looking at a setting sun because i think it's apparent to a lot of us the last 20 30 years or so clearly it's been heading in that um direction but you know nonetheless as we spoke about yesterday <laughs> for whatever reason god still smiles upon us and blesses us with so much prosperity the oil miracle of america the energy independence we have there's a lot we could do with it if we fixed our system of government but we first have to understand what it is and why it is why they adopted this system. And the first thing that has to start with is doing away with this notion of judicial supremacy. I hope you found uh, new nuggets in today's show, even for our old listeners. We're going to do this from time to time, but tomorrow we'll go back to more of the news of the day. But many respects, this is all the news of the day. Comments, concerns, questions, send to dharwitz at blazemedia.com. Tweet me at rmconservative and subscribe to the Conservative Review Podcast at our YouTube page at Conservative Review. Till tomorrow, God bless you all.